Let's take our Bibles and let's open them to Matthew 26, please. Matthew 26. Oh boy, what a text this is. Matthew 26, beginning in verse 31. We come to a text today uh, that all of us can relate to, every single one of us here, whether we admit it or not. And what Jesus is going to talk to us today about, or what His Word is going to talk to us about today, is failure. How many like failure? Raise your hand. (laughs) No, no, we don't like failure. We try to avoid failure. We don't like to fail. But if we're really honest with ourselves, we fail. We fail in lots of ways. Uh, This past week, I sat with a family uh, who has been in our church for a long time, and just some things in their lives, and they were saying that last year there were things that went on, and I knew about those things, and that's why we're there there in my office talking about it. And, And they felt like me and maybe our leadership didn't handle a situation very well. And they recounted all the reasons why and told me, you know, in love, in graciousness, it was a beautiful moment, but it was a difficult lesson. It's hard to hear when someone feels like they didn't receive the kind of treatment that they needed and they were there to kind of unload this. It was not easy. Those, those kind of conversations are not easy to take sometimes. Failure. Hmm. I, I sat with a staff person this week who felt like that situ- a situation in their life uh, was sort of in conflict with some things that I was dealing with. It was kind of a week where I was looking at my life and thinking, gee, there's lots of stuff in my life that I wish were better, I wish were different. Do you ever feel that way about you in your life? And, and the amazing thing about the text that we're about to look at today, to me, is that it, we, we, all, we all mess up. We all fail in certain areas of our lives. And if we say we don't or if we pretend we don't, we really are not being honest with ourselves. We're just kind of living in some sort of, you know, other reality. But in this text today, we're going to see that Jesus is going to point out to all of His disciples that they're all going to mess up. They're all going to fall away because of Him. And it amazes me that this is how much Jesus loves us that He would tell us ahead of time that you're going to mess up. Because I know people who think that when they become a Christian, you shouldn't mess up, and you can't mess up. Because if you do, what do you got then? You're a fake. You're a hypocrite. And a lot of us, there's people sitting here this morning, I know, that feel like you've got problems that you can't have as a believer in Christ. But I want you to hear from Jesus Himself this morning that not only does He know that, He's telling you ahead of time. I love that about Jesus. Let's read the text, beginning in verse 31. Jesus told them, this very night you will all fall away on account of me, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter replied, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. I tell you the truth, Jesus answered, this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. 
But Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same. Hmm. Now we know what happens, right? We look at this text in the context, and let's remember where we were. Pastor Danny, beautiful message last week, talked about the Last Supper, amazing picture. Jesus has announced to his disciples that he's going to die. He's, he's on a mission to the cross. Judas is making his plans. The Lord meets with his disciples. They have this amazing Passover meal. And the text tells us in verse 30 that when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And if you're taking notes or if you have a pen or pencil, I would encourage you just to write in the margin between verses 30 and 31, you could insert John chapters 14 through 17 in that little segment. If you're doing a harmony of the Gospels, it's in this section where Jesus is going to tell his disciples in my Father's house or many rooms, if it were not so, I would have told you, I am going there to prepare a place for you. He gives them the powerful talk about the Holy Spirit, what the Holy Spirit has come to do, and then he warns them that they're going to be hated on a, by all on account of his name, and then he's going to teach them more about the Holy Spirit, and then he's going to pray the most amazing prayer in John 17, and all of this happens on the way out to the Mount of Olives. And right here as we come to this particular text, verse 31, Jesus is still on that walk. They've not gotten to the Garden of Gethsemane. That's what we'll look at next week. And Jesus wants to be clear with his disciples that they're all going to desert him. They're all going to fail him. Now, we know that in the context of this, it reminds us where the disciples were. And in fact, we know that all of them, in fact, you look at verse 56 in the same chapter, it says, then all the disciples deserted him and fled. <laughs> so we know it happened. Jesus said it would happen and it happened. But what I wanted to show you this morning is in the context of what we're learning at, what we're reading here, there are two things that are just amazing to me that, that we need to zero in on. Two things that I think all of us forget or we don't embrace like He wants us to embrace. Well, here's the first thing if you're taking notes. I want you to see that Jesus knows things about us that we don't even know about ourselves. Now, most of us wouldn't disagree with that. Of course he knows stuff about us that we don't know about ourselves, right? I mean, he knows everything, right? Jesus knows everything. He has omniscience. He can know everything. But embedded in this narrative, we see the contrast between the knowledge of Jesus, the perfect, pure knowledge of Jesus, and the distorted perceptions of the disciples. Jesus, perfect knowledge, loving perception. The disciples, eh, distorted knowledge, distorted perception. Jesus reveals that he knows them as a group, he knows them as individuals, and he knows something about them that they themselves are not aware of. By the way, you, as you read through there, you saw that there was denial. Peter denies, no, Lord, I'll never forsake you. All the disciples said the same. Here's a classic blunder we have when it comes to reading God's Word or even listening to sermons. Are you ready for this? Here's the classic blunder. Whatever I'm being told that has insight or clarity about my life, I am more quickly to assume that it's about somebody else than it is about me. You follow? I mean, I don't know, sometimes I'll, I'll 
you know, once in a while I'll preach a sermon where someone will come to me and say, oh man, that was amazing. I only wish so-and-so was here. (laughs) We've all done that. And I kind of want to think, well, what about you? I've done the same thing. As I listen to a message, I start thinking about, oh, I should have had this, I should have brought this, oh, if only I could have... And the Lord is like, well, wait, wait a minute. I'm speaking to you. And that's what God wants us to see. That's what he wants us to understand. So the classic blunder is thinking it's about somebody else when it isn't. So here's, here, there are three things that Jesus wants us to know, and he wants us to know. He wants you to know. He wants me to know. Are you ready for this? If you're taking notes, first of all, he knows that even the most sincere followers among us are able to deny him, and at times, incredibly so. Let that sink in for just a minute. He knows that even the most sincere followers are going to deny him, and at times, incredibly so. Let's keep in mind who Jesus is talking to here. He's talking about, he's talking to the ones that have left everything to follow Jesus. This is the inn of the inn. This is the group that said, Lord, we will follow you to the ends of the earth. We will do everything you tell us to do. And Jesus says, all of you will fall away on account of me. He even quotes an Old Testament prophecy from Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7. We will get to it in a little bit. But in Zechariah 13, Jesus is actually saying what's about to come down was actually forecasted in Scripture. So it's not only Jesus saying it, which is Scripture himself, but it's actually backed up in the Scripture that Jesus knew. So here's a little hint that we should all clue in on. When something is told about us that comes from Scripture, we should receive it as coming from God. We should say, this is really for us. It's going to happen. Most of us are not very good at dealing with failure, denial, desertion, because we think it should never happen. And I know some of us, as we read this text, you're saying, whoa, 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 time out here. Uh, This is before Pentecost. This is before the Holy Spirit comes. Yeah, they're all going to fail Jesus because they don't have the Holy Spirit yet. And I get that, absolutely. There's a huge transformation that's about to take place when Jesus rises from the dead and the Holy Spirit comes upon them, Acts chapter 2. But if you look through the, Old, the New Testament, you find over and over, illustration after illustration, teaching after teaching, that says that even though we're followers of Jesus, we still have this struggle with a little three-letter word. Does anyone know what the word is? Sin. And we, we, we've got this, this problem with sin. We're all prone to sin, prone to wander. Lord, how I know it. Prone to leave the Lord I love. We sing the old hymn. That's so true for all of us. It's true for me. It's true for you. you. That's why when 1 John tells us, 1 John 2, we'll put it on the screen. Let's read this out loud together. Is it up there? Here we go. Let's read. Dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Don't you love that? John says, look, we don't want to sin. Of course we don't want to sin. We're not saying that we should embrace sin, 
But if we deny sin in our lives, if we deny the fact that we sin, that we stumble, that we fall, we've got a big problem. And so John, the apostle, says we shouldn't sin, but if we do, and we are going to sin, we have an advocate from the Father. We have a defense attorney. We have one who stands before the Father and says, not guilty because my blood is over the doorpost of their life. Isn't that great? And that's why Galatians 6.1 says, and I love this, we'll put this one up too, brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently, but watch yourself or you also may be tempted. In other words, the tone of the New Testament is that we should refrain from sin, we should seek to live a transformed life, but there's no possible way that we can go from the place of our conversion to death without being encumbered at times in sin. We struggle. And the beautiful thing about the New Testament is that it teaches us that all of us need the transforming grace that helps us to deal with the besetting sins in our lives. I love Romans 6.12. Do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies so that you should obey its evil desires. And you can go all the way through the New Testament. There's so many scriptures. I think of 2 Corinthians 7.1. Let us just put aside anything that contaminates body or spirit so that we may perfect holiness in our walk with God. Or Colossians 3, it says, don't let sin have its way. Don't put on the deeds of the sinful flesh. If, uh, Colossians 3.5. I mean, all the way through the New Testament, we've got these warnings about sin and how it comes to our lives. Which tells us that there are no sins or temptations that Christians are simply immune to experiencing. We are all fellow strugglers. Now, because your struggle may not be my struggle, I have to be careful not to judge you. Your struggle may not be mine. Some of us struggle with alcohol abuse. Some of us struggle with addictions to things like food or, or destructive things like pornography or gambling. Some of us are stuck on gossip or social media or gaming or whatever it is. Some of us may struggle with same-sex attraction or gender identity. We've got struggles in our lives. There's every kind of sin that can approach the Christian's life. And whatever your struggle is today, whatever it is, I want you to hear your pastor say, transforming grace can help you through and get you through, but you must be willing to see that you have to come to the place where you can admit that there's a problem. Here's some, someone told me once, and I've never forgotten this, and maybe you'd want to just jot it down, you can't get help you cannot get help from problems that you cannot have. Sometimes in the church, we make it so hard for people to get help because in a sense, we're telling people, you can't have that problem. You're a Christian? You can't have that problem. A couple weeks ago, I sat with a man in my office who admitted that he has an addiction to crack cocaine and crystal meth. He's active in our church. And he goes, I, I, I don't even know if I'm a Christian. He told me his testimony. He, 
about how Jesus changed his life and how this has been a problem ever since his college years and how it's destroying him and how he's circling, he's circling the rim before he's going to go down. We had a beautiful time of prayer, tears, crying. Thankfully, by God's grace, he's checked himself into a place. He's getting help. But I was so grateful to say to this man, listen, you, I believe you're a Christian. I can't convince you of that, but I believe by your testimony you're a Christian. But you've got a huge problem, and you've got to deal with it. Some of us have problems today that we don't want to deal with. We just can't have the struggle, and so we put it off. And we live this veneer like it's not a problem. And I, I fake it and I come to church and I smile and there's no issue in my life when there is. Beloved, please, listen to what Jesus said. I love you enough to say, Jesus said, I know you're going to blow it. There's a second thing he knows about us. Not only does he know that sometimes we deny him and incredibly so, even the most sincere followers, he also knows that sometimes our greatest declarations of loyalty are just empty words. <laughs> oh, Peter, I love this. Peter, verse 33. Not me, Lord. Never. <laughs> verse 35. Even if I have to die with you. I mean, these are big statements. These are huge. Most of us are pretty good talkers. You know, preachers are pretty good talkers, too. <laughs> you know, sometimes I think of things I say in public to hundreds, even thousands of people, and then Monday rolls around, <laughs> you know, or something happens in my family, or something happens in something, and I realize, man, I'm just such a blow-it case. All these big, you know, statements, how loyal I am. You know, and I, I don't know, I try not to make those statements because I know who I am. And if you know me well enough, you know who I am too. But you know, we tend to make pretty broad statements. We tend to forget that a lot of times those broad statements are kind of empty words. I, I love the fact, and by the way, you know, I mean, I, I'm a sinner. I know you know that. If you didn't know that, I'm sorry to inform that of you right now. <laughs> I, I'm a sinner. But I want you to know, I love Jesus. I want to follow Jesus. I want Jesus more than anything in my life. But I know, I know that I fail Jesus at times. I know I do. I know I do. And so do you. And that's the point of what Jesus is saying here. In fact, he says when it comes to our words, he says, I hear what you're saying, but I already know what you're going to do. I like Ecclesiastes 5 in the Old Testament, Solomon, wisdom. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools who do not know what they do wrong. Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven and you are on earth, so let your words be few. Preacher. Let your words be few. It's like, you know, we come in here and we pray prayers and we sing songs and sometimes we just don't think about the fact that the Lord 
The Lord knows what Monday's going to look like, Tuesday, Wednesday. He's going to know next Thursday and a week from Tuesday and next month and the, week, the month after that. He knows everything about our lives. And He knows the trajectory of our lives. He knows the things that we stumble in and the things that we fall in. And it's not like He doesn't want our words. In fact, all through the Scriptures, there's also verses I could give you that say, bring words when you come before the Lord. It's a beautiful thing to repent of sin, to say, God, we love you, and to praise your name. But the point that Jesus is saying here to his disciples is, look, I I know that you're going to deny me, and sometimes incredibly so, and I know that sometimes your words are really kind of like just a bunch of hot air. And you know what else he knows about us? He knows every instance and every detail of both the subtle and shameful denials of him and everything in between. Verse 34, my paraphrase, Jesus says to Peter, Peter, I I hear your words, I hear what you're saying, but that's not actually how it's going to come down, Peter. Uh, You say you won't deny me, but you will. I promise, you'll see. It might be good for all of us to realize that Jesus knows And when he knows about something in us that he reveals to us, we shouldn't argue with him. You know, it's like Peter is saying, oh, Lord, I hear what you're saying, but I beg to differ. (laughs) That's like when you read something in Scripture and you go, ah, I don't think so. And you say, why are you arguing with me? This is my word. I'm telling you, you're going to fail. And I'm telling you that because I love you. I don't want you to get out, out there in your Christian life And when you fail, start thinking that you're not a Christian anymore or that as a Christian, you shouldn't be having these problems. I want you to be real. And so here, in verse 34, we learn that Jesus knows all the intricacy. He says, no, actually, Peter, before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. I know the exact detail. I can hear the conversation coming. We do the same thing. You know, sometimes it's subtle. We're, we're in a conversation with somebody and we feel the Holy Spirit tugging at us to say something of our faith story and what do we do? Our lips are zipped. We don't say a word. We just let it go. Now that's a subtle form of denial. Or someone tells us a joke that is so off color, so uh, blasphemous, But, you know, we laugh because we don't want to be rejected. It's a form of denial. Or or we, we know that our neighbor wouldn't kill us for inviting them to church or to a special opportunity for them to hear the gospel. But we don't. We've lived next door to them for 10 years, but we just don't think they're quite ready. Maybe next year. (laughs) Do you follow? Subtle form of denial. Sometimes it's more shameless in our denial. Sometimes we're the ones telling the joke. Sometimes we're the one at work who has the reputation for being the sandbagger. Never work. Figure out ways around the boss. And we've got that reputation. Everybody knows it in our office. 
And we call ourselves a Christian, and we're good at putting invitations to the special outreaches on people's desks. And they go, yeah, hmm, Christian like you, I don't know. Or we break faith in our marriage. Or we lie to a friend. Or we tell someone that something is just simply not true. Or we indulge in some sinful practice that we know brings shame to the reputation of Christ. But we really don't care because we just want to satisfy our needs. In subtle and shameless ways, we deny Jesus. Hmm. So, aren't you glad you came today? <laughs> All right, th this thing turns now. This thing turns. Now, I'm glad. Personally, I'm so glad. Jesus gives me heads up. He says, Larry, I don't care how sincere you are, you're going to fail me. Larry, sometimes your words are just a bunch of hot air. And Larry, I know the distinct detail of every subtle and shameless act you commit. Now watch this. Not only does Jesus know the stuff about us that we don't even know ourselves, but here's the second thing. He knows how to restore us. He knows how to, to take what we have denied and make something very beautiful. He knows how to put us back together again. That's right. Verse 31. Verse 31. Now you thought I was not going to come back to this. Jesus said, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered, but after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Jesus is saying to his disciples that are, that are about to learn that they are going to fail him, he's about to tell them the beautiful news. He says, let me couch all this in the reality of three things, if you're taking notes. Number one, the reality that his restoration involves his sacrificial death as the payment for our sins the sacrificial death for the payment for our sins. I will strike the shepherd. Now, you can turn there if you want to. You probably should. Uh, Zechariah, it's only two books back from Matthew. It's the second book prior to the Old Testament ending. Zechariah, maybe I had to turn there too. Zechariah 13. This is the prophecy. This is the quote that Jesus is using here. Verse 7, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who is close to me, declares the Lord Almighty. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered, and I will turn my hand against the little ones. Now, this is a really intricate prophecy, and it's, it's much to explain, and I don't even know if I fully understand all of it, but here's, here's the gist. In chapter 11 of Zechariah, God sends out a polemic, uh, an indictment on the false shepherds of Israel. And he says, I'm going, to, I'm going to wipe out the false shepherds. And so when you come to chapter 13, it looks like what he's saying is, I'm going to wipe out this shepherd who also is false. But he's not the false one. He's the true one. He's the one who is close to me, says the Lord Almighty. And then the prophet says, strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. What God is saying is, Ultimately, in time, I'm going to strike the false shepherds of Judah's day, but in my time and in my perfect way, I'm going to strike the true shepherd also. In fact, if you look carefully at what Jesus said about this prophecy, Jesus changes the quotation slightly. In Matthew 26, Jesus says, quote, 
I will strike the shepherd. Here in chapter 13, verse 7, it's just strike the shepherd. Jesus is giving us an interpretive key to this passage. He is saying, listen, it is the Father's pleasure to strike the shepherd. Why? Because that's the way of restoration. There's no healing outside of Jesus' death. Jesus died for our sins. He paid the ultimate cost. And that's why we can never trivialize the cross. This is why the cross means everything to us. It's all about the cross. And that's why the passion narratives are leading us down this road where all we're going to see is the cross. And right here, Jesus says it again, strike the shepherd, I will strike the shepherd, speaking of God the Father, and the sheep will be scattered. Remember Isaiah 53? Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. Praise God. This is the message of the gospel. He was pierced for us. He restores us through his own given life. There's a second piece. Not only is the peace of the cross a part of our restoration, but his miraculous resurrection. Jesus says in the text, after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. His miraculous resurrection. If Christ has not raised, 1 Corinthians 15 says, we are still in our sins and our faith is futile, right? We're stuck. If it's only the cross, we're stuck. But because of the cross and the resurrection of Christ, we have hope even in our most miserable failures because Jesus said, I will rise. Shall we continue in sin that grace might abound? May it never be said. How can we who have died to sin still live in it, Paul says, First, uh, Romans chapter 6. Jesus gives us the new life through His resurrected life so that we can live a new life. I'll share a little more there, but let me just move to the last thing, which I think is out of all this, ties it all together, and that is His personal presence among us is the means of our restoration. His personal presence among us. I want to key in just on this little phrase, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. You remember in the gospel record when Jesus rose from the grave? Yes, he met with his disciples briefly in Jerusalem, briefly near the place where he had risen from the grave. But his mission was to meet his disciples in Galilee. Why did he want to take them to Galilee? He wanted to be with them and have time to restore them. And John chapter 20 is a beautiful rendition, uh, 21 rather, a beautiful picture of how Jesus did that with His disciples and specifically with Peter. Remember, Peter, do you love me? Three times, do you love me? Do you love me? A beautiful text where Jesus is saying to Peter, Peter, I've come all this way. I've died for your sins. I rose from the grave. I'm here in Galilee to meet with us in community so that I may restore you, Peter. You know, it struck me as I was studying this passage, the beauty of restoration happens 
in the context of community. You, you know, you rarely, get, you rarely get restored outside of community. You can know that Jesus has forgiven your sins. Yep. You can know that He raised from the, rise from the grave. Yes. But there's something very beautiful about being with brothers and sisters in Christ and hearing the the absolution of our sin by Christ Himself. You are forgiven. I've restored you. I know that you blow it. I know that you fail me, but I'm here to restore you. And I just wonder, I just wonder if there's anyone today that needs that restoration. Is it you? I think if we were honest, all of us would say, yes, Lord. Don't you feel it? I feel it. Yes, Lord. I need your restoration.